Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children, and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on all those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I still pinch myself but thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime i guess instead of confronting him angrily about right and wrong and about safety and danger we'd now sit him down and start talking to him about what his family means to him i'm going to start with a warning because today's podcast is pretty hard going and it's a warning because it's about road trauma. It's about a decision by a young man to drive a car under the influence of alcohol and drugs, which ended in tragedy beyond anything you can imagine. I heard our guests today, Melissa and Peter McGuinness, speak on ABC Radio recently, and I contacted them because I wanted you to hear their story too. It's a story of channeling their unimaginable grief and guilt into educating the community about youth road trauma. And this story doesn't end well. In fact, it just gets worse. If you are a parent of any kids about to get their licence or they've just got their licence or you feel like you're nagging your kids about their behaviours and responsibilities on the road, please go and get them and sit and listen to Melissa and Peter for the next 50 minutes or so. And it might go some way to explaining to them why you're nagging. It's a conversation that every driver needs to listen to, but particularly young men and women just finding their way in the world. Jordan Hayes McGuinness was 18. He was a good kid, 
who'd been testing the boundaries like most young adults starting to find their independence. He'd been fined for speeding and unbeknown to his parents, he'd also been using marijuana. But nothing could have prepared Melissa and Peter for that knock on the door in the early hours of the morning of the 8th of December 2012. It was the police, which could only mean bad news, and it was. And it just got worse. Jordan had been to a Christmas function where he'd been drinking and he decided to drive home, but he never made it home because he crashed into a broken-down car which had pulled over on the side of the road, killing not only himself but four young people in the broken-down car, also leaving a 15-month-old child orphaned. Jordan's autopsy showed drugs in his system as well, so it was a fatal cocktail of alcohol, drugs and driving. Melissa and Peter's grief and guilt has been unbearable, but they've never hidden from the fact that their son is a perpetrator who killed four innocent people. After years of drowning in that grief and guilt, they needed to channel it into something worthwhile. So they founded an organisation called You Choose Youth Road Safety. And their mission is to change driver behaviour and educate in preventing youth road trauma. And they're not seeking sympathy. And they're not doing it to make themselves feel better because they can't feel better. They want to prevent any other person having to experience the repercussions that they have from their son's behaviour and bad choices. Their work in the education of preventing youth road trauma won Melissa runner-up for 2021 Queensland Australian of the Year and the 2020 Gold Coast Woman of the Year People's Choice. There's quite an introduction. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Melissa and Peter. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Narelle. Um, I'm sorry that we've met in the circumstances we have, but you've got a very powerful message, and I suppose there's no sugarcoating it, is there? I can't call it an accident because it wasn't. Uh, Jordan made a decision, clouded by alcohol and drugs. So I suppose could we start off, did you have any idea Jordan was pushing the boundaries by drinking and taking drugs? We were certainly surprised to find out that um, he was he was using marijuana. Um, we did know that that he he had a drink, um, but probably in no different uh, a pattern than than many um, young adults his age. We certainly didn't think then, and we know now that he didn't have a drinking problem uh, per se. But yeah, we we were surprised to find out that he that he had used marijuana for sure. I don't suppose it's anything unusual, is it, for a young 18-year-old, as I said, to be, but just to be trying different things. I mean, I think we've all tried different things, whether it be having a drink or, um, you know, having a a smoke of weed. Um, But you obviously, had you talked about it at all or? Um, It wasn't really a topic that came up frequently um, in our family, simply because, you know Jordan's own family, you know ourselves and and uh, his extended family weren't people that that did use weed. Although we did have, you know, we were social drinkers, um, but probably no different than 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 most families. So 
No, we, we didn't really discuss it in depth. Um, and there were several reasons behind that. Um, firstly, because it had never come to our attention, but also because, um, well, Jordan was a very athletic kid who was, you know, very invested in his fitness and his football and in looking after himself. Um, so it re- wasn't really something that was front of mind for us, was it, Melissa? No, not at all. Uh, and I think as a parent, you sort of tend to watch for the signs for things like that. And, and I simply didn't see any signs from Jordan. But I suppose uh, being typical kids, if parents do say something to them, they're going to fob you off anyway, aren't they? Like, what would you know, Mum? What would you know, Dad? <laughs> yeah, quite possibly, yep. Yeah, that's for sure. So, look, Jordan had already been issued with a speeding fine, hadn't he? Can you can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, he had a couple of um, low-level speeding fines for, um, you know, sort of, I think there was one for 10 kilometres over, one for maybe 13 kilometres over. So they were just very low-level fines and... Because he was on his uh, red peas, he had enough fines that it caused him to lose his um, license. So he could either go for the six-month um, restricted license or lose his license for 12 months, which he decided to go for the six-month restricted license. And during that period of time, which also coincided when he died, he did actually get one more speeding, one low-level speeding fine at that point in time. And um, I actually opened that letter uh, after he had died from the um, transport department or the people that issued the fines to say that he had indeed had another speeding fine and therefore was um, going to lose his his license. And I read that probably about four or five days after he died, so he would never have even known that. So uh, it's fair to say that... Um, you asked us before about discussions we might have had about, you know, using marijuana. Well, we definitely had discussions with him about, you know, the fact that he'd had a couple of speeding fines and mm. we we were we were quite harsh with him, of course, you know, because we'd always said to him, imagine every car on, that, on the road that you encounter, every other car contains your little sisters. Um, and, of course, he drove... You know, very conservatively when either Melissa or I were in the car with him. Of course. So, <laughs> yeah. 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 So, of course, those those speeding fines and, you know, we'll probably come to this later, Narell, but, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. At the time, you know, Jordan looked at those fines as an inconvenience. You know, we looked at them as... Um, a warning. Yeah, something, something a bit more serious than that. But, of course... Um, you know, in time it was revealed to us that, you know, his pattern of driving was reflected very much in those fines and it, it mm. certainly had nothing to do with bad luck. Yeah. What What was his response when you spoke to him about the speeding fines? Was it um, – was he dismissive or how did he respond? He did what a lot of people do um, and I'm – this is by no means making an excuse for him – but, yeah, the, the narrative was that, oh, look, you know, these speed cameras were placed in, you know, entrapment areas and that, you know, doing 70 in a 60 is not dangerous. You know, doing, doing 60 in a 50 is not dangerous. And I suppose you can rationalise that. 
I mean, the, the, the fact is, is that he was by no means someone who had the slightest interest in street racing or, or hooning or, or, or anything of that nature. But, he, but, you know, he was careless. And I think at the time, even ourselves probably looked at it as saying, well, he was hardly doing 150 in an 80. So doing 70 in a 60 and, 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 and 60 in a 40 was not something that really rung many alarm bells from us other than the fact that we were annoyed that he was being careless. Yeah, yeah. I imagine that you would have been quite angry um, with those first two speeding fines, were you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember sitting with Jordan in that car and like Peter just said, we repeated to him over and over again, Every single time that you get in that car and you drive, you need to remember that there is someone's Montana or Kitty in every single car. And he really understood that. He really loved his sisters. And I thought that he would um, respect that and that would translate into how he drove. So to find out that he was being a little bit irresponsible on the road, it did. It absolutely angered me because, you know, He's a driver that's had his licence for, you know, whatever, three, six, uh, nine months' time. It's completely unacceptable for anyone to drive like that, particularly someone who's only had their licence for such a short period of time. So, yeah, for sure we were angry. Yeah, and I'm sure, Melissa, that um, I – well, I'm not sure. How on earth would you have felt when you opened that third speeding fine after he had passed away? Did your heart just drop? Yeah, it did it. It made me feel sick to the stomach, particularly knowing. I mean, it was only might have even been three days. It was when we went to collect his um, belongings, and to open that and realize what I was reading in context with what had just happened three or four or five days earlier, whatever that time frame. I'm a little bit um, sketchy on that. I was devastated. I was devastated for him. I was devastated for what that would mean um, as, you know, we found out more information. You know, I knew this wouldn't be uh, good. You know, it was awful. And, Norel, I think it's really relevant to bring this up. The fact that he was fined and and received tickets is one thing. But had he not been fined or detected speeding, he was still doing it. And this is the one, this is one thing that we really go to lengths to explain to the young people that we engage about their driving, that the compliance culture that we have is something separate from your accountability as a driver. So getting caught is one thing. Yes, you get a warning shot across your bows if you get caught you know, on low-level offences like that. But it's actually not about just getting caught, just being compliant. It's about your attitude. So, you know, while Jordan and ourselves, we got those warning shots, um, the fact of the matter is, is that even if we didn't get those warning shots and he didn't have the benefit, actually, of getting fined and being able to consider his his behaviours, it wouldn't have meant that he was a good driver. So there's a connection that needs to be made um, by young drivers that 
between their behaviour and outcomes, not just about compliance and outcomes. It's it's a complex issue, and you know we're learning a lot about it the more we we interact with the young drivers. I bet you are. So, what do you both say to parents out there who are concerned about some worrying behaviours that their young adult children are exhibiting? And I suppose it's easy to say now, but how would you approach it in hindsight? Um, we've learned a lot over over you know the time that we've been presenting new shoes around the country to young people, and one of the big lessons that we've learned is that they respond. Um, very powerfully and very emotionally to the idea of protection, protecting their family. And once they've seen what Jordan put his family through and and very much more so what Jordan put his victims and their families through, it starts to become apparent to them that when parents, you know, nag them about their driving habits or about any of their habits, They've actually got their best interests at heart, but that there's more to it than that. It's about it's about family and it's about love. If I had if we had our time again and we got a chance to sit down with with Jordan with his fines, I guess instead of confronting him angrily about right and wrong and about safety and danger, we'd now sit him down and start talking to him about what his family means to him. And what his future means to him. Because had he survived the crash, he'd most certainly be in prison for most of his adult life and deservedly so. And I'm sure that he would be in there and he would be thinking about the victims and their families and his own family and his culpability. And that is the type of conversation that we would ha- have had with him early on in the piece when he got his first fines rather than being angry with him about being caught in non-compliance. Um, it's, it's a subtle difference, but it's an important one and it's certainly how teens react themselves. When you talk to a teen about bad driving and about bad behaviour behind the wheel, they simply don't relate it to themselves. It's amazing. They'll sit there and go, "Well, I'm not an I'm not an idiotic driver. I'm a bloody good driver." You know, you know, right and wrong and safety and dangers about everyone else. Just because other people can't control a car properly doesn't mean I, you know, I can't. So if you remove the context away from them, and you put and you place the context around their own family and around other people's families and about their accountability to protect their family and other people's families, then you can start having really meaningful conversations about, you know, their behaviours behind the wheel. And that's something that we had no, we just didn't have any context or knowledge about it, of course, um, you know, before Jordan died, but we've certainly learned a lot since. I think Jordan would be so horrified to see the state that he's left his two sisters in. He loved those girls so much and if he could just see the devastation, and even for my 18-year-old daughter now who was 10 years old at the time, she still really struggles with his death. Thank- thankfully, Kitty was only four when Jordan died, but she's coming into an age now where she understands that, you know, she only got at her brother for a third of her life so far. And 
part of what we or what I like to um, show the students is, you know, imagine what life would be like for your siblings because look at Montana and Kitty, this is what they have to deal with every single day, mm. the, the death of their brother. And things like that really helped put it into perspective for the kids when they think about their siblings, particularly, you know, their little sisters or their little brothers, you know, and what life might be like for them. You know, I'm just thinking to myself how nervous I imagined that you and Peter would be about Montana reaching the age of 18 where uh, uh, Jordan uh, never lived past, you know, he just turned 18. Are you? And I'm sorry to bring it up, but I, it's an obvious question, isn't it? How do you feel about her attaining that age? Well, Norella, I, I guess anyone that's... Uh Anyone that's gone through the horror of losing a child and, and having, um, you know, surviving children will understand your your deep-seated you know, desire or drive to wrap them all in bubble wrap so that nothing ever, no harm ever comes to anyone. You know, again, and of course, you know, you're astute to, to point out that we're really, really nervous about, you know, Montana getting her licence and, and, and driving, but... You know, obviously, we can't we can't throw our our surviving you know children into bubble wrap, and and happily, given the context you know in which Montana has has grown up, she's an extremely cautious and 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 um, and safe driver, and and very respectful of everyone else on the road. And again, you know, to go back to a previous question you asked. What what would we say to parents whose children are, are exhibiting poor driving behaviours? Have a look at our eighteen and a half year old daughter, nearly nineteen now, because she's gone through what she's gone through in her life. She drives as a function of of transport, and with you know the utmost respect for her family and for other people's families. That's the context that she uses because it's her lived experience. Um, and, again, that's the kind of conversation that you can have with your children about their driving um, because we have those kind of conversations with many thousands of young drivers ourselves um, and they're, 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 the kind of, they're the kind of conversations that can be had, you know, between mums and dads, uh, sorry, uh, between young drivers and their mums and dads and their siblings I was going to say too on that note, as Montana was learning to drive, and she was one of the, the youngest kids in her cohort, given she's got an April, sorry, a March birthday. And so a lot of her friends were getting their L's and P's earlier than her. So I always had this um, concern about I just wanted her to hurry up and get her own license. So therefore, she would be the driver and not be in the car with other people. It was almost a bigger fear for her to be. Mm in with another teen driver that I didn't know what their driving um, abilities were like or their um, attitudes towards driving. So I always was just so desperate for her to get a licence because I know she would respect the road rules. But talking about Montana turning 18 and we've got quite a large family and Jordan had a lot of cousins that he was very close with and he was the third oldest in, in our family. And I've watched all of his cousins reach the age where he died and it's always very hard to see one of our 
family members reach that age and overtake the age Jordan was when he died. And we're right at that point for Montana now where she's exactly the age Jordan was when he died. And I think sometimes I'm a little bit harder on my kids because I think, you know, I listen to the things that kids whinge about today and I think you're so lucky, you know, get out there and and, um, make a fist of it. Yeah. I suppose, Melissa, that you're seeing, you and Peter are seeing what, with his cousins growing up, you're seeing what he is going to miss out on. Absolutely. And I somewhat sort of vicariously live through all of his cousins and, you know, some of his closest mates who are now our dearest mates watching all the things, you know, we've just got the first, um, one of my nephews is about to have a, a baby. Uh, and watching all those sort of things come through and another one of the cousins was recently married and knowing that, you know, Peter and I will never, ever get mm. to see that with Jordan, it, it's, you know, mm. it's hard. Mm. But that, look, that said, and this is this is really, really important, Narelle, um, yes, all of, all of that provides context inside our family and it certainly provides context inside our family for how people drive how the younger members of our family drive. But as far as, you know, suffering and grief, our thoughts, our prayers daily, every day, there wouldn't be a day that Jordan's victims don't predominate our thoughts. That's right. So, yes, while we're having the lived experiences we're having, we've got the utmost sensitivity and respect for the fact that, Jordan's actions, our son's actions, devastated, you know, generations of four families, injured and, and, and traumatised, you know, the, the surviving person in the other car as well. No amount of suffering that we experience, no amount of grief, nothing is comparable to what has happened to Jordan's victims and... Um, irrespective of the challenges that, that you know that, that we might experience, um, we we don't seek sympathy. We never sought sympathy, um, and you know the, the, the sympathy belongs with Jordan's victims. What, what we seek, what we seek, even by having a conversation with with yourself, Narelle, is change. Yeah, gee, it's it's tough because, like. Something that I admire, and we've only uh, spoken a couple of times, but something I admire with you both is the uh, the respect um, that you show, and you never ever forget. Though, and I find it really hard to even admit that Jordan killed four other people. That's really tough to say because that's your son. But you never, I've heard you now, this is a, I heard you on the ABC and you said the same thing and you never, ever forget those families. And and I think to myself, they would be, and I'm sure you um, agree, that the pain and grief and trauma you've gone through, they've all gone through as well, you know. And But yours is almost added grief because your son caused that. And I find that hard to say, but it's reality, isn't it? Look, I don't think, you know, you, you can compare, you know, people's trips to the bottom of the barrel, to use a, you know, to use an analogy. Um, but look, from, from our standpoint, 
we completely understand like anyone's attitudes towards Jordan being anger, um, um, any kind of response to what he did, because quite simply what he did was unforgivable. Now, we have forgiven Jordan because we understand that he would have not, we would never have formed an intent to do what he did. But as we say to the young people that we talk to, intent is a legal construct. Look at the outcome. Whether you intend to do something or not, if you act recklessly, if your behaviours cause these horrible, horrible, miserable outcomes, then intent, believe it or not, will have very little impact on you at all. What your intentions are are irrelevant. If your actions endanger other people, then you need to sit back and reconsider what you're doing with your with, with your actions, and particularly in context with driving. When you drive, you're in control of a lethal weapon, right? So, what your preferences are in terms of driving fast, in terms of being distracted by music, by devices, lane shopping, tailgating, all of those things that you do thoughtlessly can and very frequently do result in the deaths of other people. And if you're responsible for that, you will never forgive yourself. You will devastate your own family and other people's families. Now, you know, these are the kind of things that, that resonate with, with this teen cohort. Um, talking to them about their, their own safety, uh, moralising with them about right and wrong only gets you so far because they don't put it in context with their actions. But they, they certainly do put – it, it does become relatable to them when we show them a relatable family like ours. Jordan was a relatable person. No different in so many ways to so many of the, of, of the young drivers that we engage with or their friends. He's from a family – very, you know, not much different than so many other families. Yeah, you're right. Yep. You know, he had a mum that loved him, a father that loved him very much, stepdad, me, who loved him, sisters, very much like the young drivers that we speak to. So when a set of circum horrific circumstances play out, like played out with what Jordan did that night to his victims, it's it, it's a very natural thing for people to, to, to look at the perpetrator with with no empathy, and that's and that's deserved. We understand that, and to also go, what kind of person would do that? Well, we've got an opportunity to show young drivers what kind of person would do that, and it's confronting for these young drivers to see that kind of person because that kind of person, our son Jordan, isn't a hell of a lot different to themselves or their friends. Do you know the amount of times that I say to um, people that? that, um, you know, it's not about us. None of this is about Peter, Jordan, and I. This is all about Jordan's victims. And that's one of the conversations that I have frequently with students who come up to um, talk to me after presentations because, of course, you know, I, I tell this story about what happened with Jordan. And obviously I can only tell it through my own pers- perspective. Um, and the kids often sympathise with me and I say to them all the time, it's not about me. It's not about my husband. It's not even about Jordan. It is all about his victims and his victims' families. And about 
the kids themselves. It's a, yes, it's a cautionary tale, but it, but it's a cautionary tale that is highly relatable. Um, most of the young drivers that we interact with, and, and nearly all of, of of the senior school students that we talk to, have got the, the, a heart for social justice. You know, they're active with regard to the, their their empathy for things like you know climate, or or diversity or equality. Um, and, and we, we do everything we can, given that they're as emotional as they are and as engaged as they are with these issues about driving and choice. We, we uplift them and we empower them and we say, you can leave with those big social justice hearts of yours, this auditorium, right now today, and you can start saving lives right now with, with, that, with those protective instincts that you've got. You know, you're, you're like, uh, you're, we all know what teens are like, you know, and we all know ourselves as teens. We, we, were, we were motivated to change the world. One of the easiest ways to change the world is to change the wholly unnecessary road toll that we have and to change driving culture. And I guess we can touch on that a little later, Narelle, but, you know, the second that young drivers understand that bad driving is not bad luck and that they can be accountable for protecting their families, their loved ones and their communities from this preventable misery of youth road trauma, um, then the, the whole narrative transforms from something that is about this relatable family and a perpetrator who's relatable to them and it becomes a social movement they can then own the message amongst their peer group, amongst their school group, around their community. It's actually not about our family um, owning this sort of tragic cautionary message. It's actually about empowering the, 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 the young drivers that we interact with to go out and start making changes with those big social justice hearts they have. You told me that after Jordan died that you found out through some of his friends, I think, that he was showing some pretty ordinary driving skills. So how do you think you would have reacted if someone had approached you and said, hey, listen, you know, Jordan's doing this or doing that? Would you have, well, I won't put words in your mouth, how would you have reacted if somebody would have approached you and said that? Um, I'm speaking for Melissa here. She, she's looking at me knowing that that would have been sort of my department with, yes, with, with Jordan. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, look, I, I know for sure I would have reacted angrily. I, I would have lectured him about safety and danger and I wouldn't do that with the hindsight that I have now. I would certainly instead talk to him about his feelings about his family and I talked to him about the fact that, you know, poor, poor driving has consequences um, and those consequences can often mean death for yourself, for other people. While that is an awful thing to experience, like obviously personally, you, you wouldn't want to be injured or, or killed yourself, um, you know, what you leave behind with victims, and those victims include your own family, by the way, mm, yeah. is generational misery. 
And I would say this, and you know, Jordan was a footy player. You know, other young people have other interests or in their lives. But you know, these days, I often talk to young young footy players about their driving, and I would I would I would use an example, I guess, and I do this with Jordan. You know, if if, if you saw anyone harassing or or punching into your little sisters, what would you do? You know, and of course, a hundred percent of them say, oh, you know, I'd. I'd remonstrate with them, I'd, you know, I'd go and get them, you know. So, well, why on earth would you personally endanger other people's little sisters with your careless driving? Every time you get in that car, you think about your family and other people's families because you're empowered. It's not luck. It's not rolling the dice when you get in a car. You're in absolute control of what you do in it. So you can you can protect your family. You can you can protect other people's families with the choices you make, and by being an advocate for good choices amongst your peers. So I would I would literally have that conversation that I have with so many other young drivers with Jordan now, and I encourage other parents to have similar conversations with their teen drivers and. It's possible to do. We've got living proof of this. We've we've got many thousands of, of, of testimonies where, you know, mums will say to Melissa, you know, little Johnny hasn't spoken to me hardly for, for six months. He's He's been to your presentation and all of a sudden we're sitting around the kitchen table talking about love, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, look, we've by all means not got all the answers here and we're learning from the young drivers ourselves. But that would be the nature of the conversation I'd have with Jordan if I got a second chance. One thing that I notice when I do speak. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. With the students is when they think about car accidents, they think about if I have an if I have a car crash, I might die, and they have this disconnection with, you know, oh well, I I might die, but.
but there is absolutely no thought or um, feeling about mm. the family and the siblings, which is an interesting thing. So if I had the chance to talk to Jordan, I would do that that um, same sort of ch- chat to sit him down and go, you talk to your sisters about if you break the law, what's going to happen to you or if you kill someone because the, the drivers, sorry, I, I sit here listening to Peter who's so beautiful with his words and I just get mesmerised <laughs> by listening to him. Um, but I hear these students Disconnect with themselves dying, not that any of the kids necessarily want to die, but they don't ever think about the fact that there's a good chance that they're going to kill someone else or kill a family member or a stranger and then therefore spend the next 20 or so years in prison or whatever period of time depending on the crash circumstances. And there's a whole different connection with the students when they think about if I had to live with killing my sister or killing my mum or my dad or innocent people on the road, there's a whole different mm. dynamic shift that you see them have and that mm. that's as a result of hearing about that story of exactly what Jordan did. Mm. He was reckless and as a result, yes, he paid the price but four beautiful, innocent, young adults lost their life for his poor behaviour. You know, so there's two very different sides mm. of the coin there. Mm. Yeah, that's a really, a really um, important point, Narelle. Um, and it speaks to, to you know, what we endeavour to accomplish about the language that surrounds driving, the language of luck, the culture of luck. Um, you know, when you when you talk to young people about the safety and danger aspects, and they they they're used to being lectured about safety and danger and right and wrong, and they they find it hard to contextualise it to themselves because they don't picture themselves dying, and if they do die. There's something sort of I don't know romantic or 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 something noble attached to dying early, and we're we've all seen this nonsense that we're all surrounded with it. You know, live fast and leave a good looking corpse. You know, live fast, die young. We've 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 seen that. You know, people that die an early death are, are lionised with you know massive memorials and all this sort of stuff, and 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 teens are very much caught up in this in this kind of culture. So, you know, the, one of the other things that we're able to do in the position that we're in is to be able to demonstrate that there is no, nothing noble, nothing noble, no redeeming features, no silver linings, no upside whatsoever to you devastating your own families by dying young through your poor choices. There is no upside to it. So, again, you know, these things come back to choice and the rejection of luck. Um, I, I can't tell you, Narelle, how many times people have empathised with Melissa and, and, and me, you know, about losing Jordan by saying, well, you know, poor Jordan, we've all done it. Now, if you let that statement sit on you for a while, you just realise how damaging that culture is because we've all done it is just not good enough. We've all done it actually says, well, you know, 18 to 25 is just a dangerous time to be alive. We all drive like idiots, so it's just rolling the dice. You know, and a teen, they, they absorb that stuff. So when they hear that around them as part of the driving culture, and you add that to the, the formal education pieces where kids are told that, you know, between ages 15 and 25, they're neurologically, you know, predisposed towards risk-taking and all that. 
then this this idea becomes embedded that it's just a dangerous time to be alive and that, you know, most car crashes are accidents. We even call them accidents because it makes us feel better. Well, I can tell you, and we know, and, and your listeners will know just from the chat that we've had today so far, Jordan did not have an accident. You know, Jordan had developed a pattern of bad driving behaviours. Jordan was careless and Jordan made bad choices. Jordan had a crash. His victims are the ones that had the accident. So we're very clear about um, making that, that language and that, that cultural, that misguided culture clear um, to the young drivers that we engage with, and they respond really well with it. Mm, I have no doubt they do. Can you tell us what um, you know about the lead-up to Jordan driving that night? Yeah, sure. Jordan had been at his work Christmas party. Uh, he'd worked all day, been up really early in the morning, gone to work, and then met up with his workmates at around 4 o'clock at a, a pub in Brisbane. And he wasn't supposed to be driving home that night. We'd corresponded via text with him a couple of times. He said he was having a great night. Uh, I know that he left the party at around about um, 8 o'clock and his um, employer had sent them sent all the boys home in cabs. Mm. Jordan decided to go out somewhere. There's two hours that is um, unaccountable. These times unaccountable. About 11 o'clock he decided to leave his home in Brisbane and drive to the Gold Coast for reasons I don't I, – I'm just not sure. I would have it a guess that he didn't want to drive in the traffic on Saturday morning. Our traffic from Brisbane to the Gold Coast is um, awful on the weekends. No excuses. Um, when he came through um, Coomera, just near Dreamworld, he hit a stationary car that was broken down on the side of the highway and that car had five young adults in it. They ranged between the ages of 23 and 16 and um, as a result of the collision, Jordan was estimated doing 141 kilometres an hour when he hit that stationary car and it caused their car to go careening up the guardrail and the car exploded into flames and um only one of the occupants got out, and that was the 16-year-old P-plater, um, and he was the only one to survive the crash. And I didn't find out the next morning, or Peter and I didn't find out the next morning until around about 5.30 when the police knocked on our door. They rang our doorbell, and I remember answering that airphone, and, and Peter and I are very early risers, so we were sitting on our lounge at about half past and we were having our cups of tea like we did every single morning and watching the sunrise and um, the airphone rang and I, when I answered the airphone and I was greeted by two police, I remember doing a quick stock take of my life wondering why the police were on our front doorstep. You know, this is unusual behaviour and I actually just assumed perhaps my car had been stolen or something along those lines and I had to walk down the stairs to let those uh, officers in and as I rounded that last set of stairs and I saw the two, those two forlorn officers through my glass door. You know, my heart absolutely sank. My knees gave way and I knew at that point that something was drastically wrong. 
And the police didn't tell me down there on the doorstep. Uh, they just asked if they could come upstairs, which absolutely, um, that was no problem. And I remember walking in the, the door and saying to Peter, it's the police, something's happened. And the police were um, very sympathetic and they, they just sat us down and um, said something along the lines of, you know, we um, there's been a, an accident, sorry, a, a crash up in Coomer and we believe your son Jordan Hayes McGuinness was fatally injured. And hearing those words and trying to make sense of it just it it just made no sense at all and Kitty was with us Montana had been away um that evening and we had Kitty there and she watched both Peter and I sort of fall apart hearing this information and trying to process what had gone on and at this point we had no idea what had taken place we had no idea that he had also been responsible for the deaths of for other people. So you can imagine during the course of the day as some information came to light and the uh, enormity of the reality started to set in, you know, it's one of those days it will haunt me and Peter for the rest of our lives as it would, you know, haunt Jordan's victims' families as well, I I would imagine. And, of course, the the well, the, the grieving process started immediately. Um, once it had come to light, uh, what, what Jordan had done and, you know, the full horror of his culpability and, and the responsibility that he had um, for the deaths of his victims, the guilt starts. And, and we, we, <clears throat> we often talk about this, that, that – and it's 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 remarkable that the that, that the teens that we speak to also can can relate because it's it's quite a complex set of feelings. But Jordan has very much transferred his guilt and his culpability onto his loved ones. And while we know that that and rationally that we weren't responsible for what for what our son did. It, that that doesn't neutralise those those deep seated visceral feelings that you have um, of of being responsible for what he did, um, and they're, they're feelings that are very hard to articulate, um, but they're real and 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 they create a weight that simply cannot be put down, and we started to have to carry that weight um, from very early on in the piece. And um, while you're also trying to grieve and to find a way of putting one foot in front of the other, you know, for, for you know, our other children and, and um, you know the, the the idea that we we had to figure out a way to recover or figure out a way of, of of putting down this this weight of culpability we were carrying, you know, was was a, a, a difficult challenge, particularly over the first couple of years. But we've since concluded that um, 
you know, recovery is something that's that's a nice concept and it's something that, you know, I think there's a contemporary expectation that there is a silver lining to everything and that, you know, we should all try to find a positive way and, and that recovery um, is something that's expected. Um, I, I think it's been um, we've found some peace in in the truth that recovery isn't possible in a in a nice, neat, defined way, and that the weight that Jordan has left with his loved ones and us is not something that we should seek to put down, but something that we're actually looking to find ways of carrying and to assist each other to carry it. And um, lo and behold, this mission, you choose Youth Road Safety, which is something that has very much led us, not the other way around, is a way for us to, to make sense of that weight and to find some purpose in it. Mel, can you give us a, a little bit of an insight into what Jordan was like? Yeah, sure. Jordan was your, your uh, quintessential everyday knockabout teen. He was devoted to his rugby and his surfing and he was a, a doting big brother to his two younger sisters, Montana, who was eight years younger, and and Kitty, who was four years younger. And by no means was he a saint, he was a highly energised, healthy, enthusiastic teen who loved life and, you know, he pretty much had the world at his feet. And, you know, he he never left the house without finding me and giving me a kiss goodbye. And my abiding memory of Jordan will, be ever, will forever be the last day that we spent together, just six weeks before he died. The two of us were Christmas shopping for him and we're in one shop and I tried on this black dress as pretty much Geordie tried on the rest of the store and I said to him, mate, what do you think about this black dress? And he said to me, mum, you look really pretty in that. And really, <laughs> what 18-year-old boy tells their mum that they look pretty? I wore that very same dress 19 days later to Jordan's funeral. I thought you were going to say that. A black dress to a funeral. Oh, my goodness. Who would have ever have thought? Yeah. Um, and I think when I talk about Jordan the kid or Jordan the teen, you know, there's a particular part in my presentation. And I like to give the students that I present to an insight into what Jordan was like because it's very much like holding up a mirror to them. So I'd like to just sort of quote from an extra extract of the presentation and it's quite a, a powerful part and I often – address this to the boys in the group. It's equally as um, important for the girls, but I, I know that the lads are more likely to uh, be able to identify. So I'd just like to do this little little excerpt. Now, lads, I'd respectfully ask you to pay special attention to what I'm about to say in the next couple of minutes. If you haven't listened up hard until this point, you really better tune in now because this is information that you absolutely have to consider when it comes to driving or getting in a car driven by a mate. Jordan was a fantastic rugby player. He was a very gifted fly half. In fact, he could have quite well have gone on to play professionally, and that's what he aspired to do. Jordan was a hardworking apprentice builder and an entrepreneurial thinker. We all knew he'd turn his trade into a bright and a wealthy future. Jordan was smart, 
Jordan was funny and Jordan was definitely popular. He put a lot of effort into the good things in his vocation, his sport and his life. And people who knew him respected him for that. But none of that means anything now. Those who knew him knew all his great attributes. Jordan was a great person. But again, none of it. None of it means anything now. That's because he defined himself forever by the choices he made that night. He shaped a terrible permanent legacy for himself, his family and his victims' families because he chose to drive recklessly. And everything that he did before that night just pales in comparison. Everything. Think of all the good stuff you've done. Think of all the effort you've put into your life. Think of all the effort the people who love you have put into your life. Imagine all of that being wiped out with one stupid choice. Because that's the brutal reality of what can happen. And I've just demonstrated that here today through actual lived experiences. Couldn't happen to someone who comes from a good home, right? Wrong. I still love Jordan profoundly. I miss him terribly. I know the person he was, but it can't be sugar-coated. He defined himself permanently by his actions that night. And he left his family and his victims' families to live with everything that that means. You've got an opportunity to absorb this for yourself now. You know what wrong behaviours are. You know. There are accidents and there are choices. Jordan didn't have an accident. That's what happened to his victims. Jordan made a choice. Don't waste everything that's good about you by leaving a legacy like he did. Own the choice. Own the outcome. Wow, Melissa, that is unbelievable. I just wanted to ask you, you indicated to me during our discussions for today that you've experienced uh, vitriol and anger from some of the community involved in those young people's lives who Jordan killed. I'm not condoning it, but I have to admit I understand it. Um, Can you tell us a bit about that? To the extent that we can, yeah. um, Look, it's something that, you know, you find it understandable, so do we. Um, Jordan did what he did. And, you know, whether whether they're, they're people that are close to the victims or related to the victims or whether they're people completely unknown, to, to to any of the of of the people closest with the closest involvement to this this mm. tragedy, mm. it's not up to us to judge anyone's feelings on this. Um, people are completely um, entitled to feel however they they need to feel about it, and, and you know, we can only I guess repeat that we absolutely don't seek sympathy. We we don't seek forgiveness for Jordan. We we don't do what we do uh, to make ourselves feel better. We don't do what we do as some kind of therapy. We just come back to the idea that you know what we're after is is change and 
and to to help to facilitate some sort of self-sustaining advocacy or, or peer movement amongst young drivers so that no families ever have to go through what Jordan put his victims' families through. Um, in, in terms of, of our, our feelings in that regard, we've had, you know, one, one or two um, of, the, of the victims' family members reach out to us who we've responded to. There's, there's been another one or two that have, that have, you know, also reached out to us uh, critically who have responded to who we haven't heard from and there's been, you know, several more that we haven't heard from at all. But one thing that, you know, that, that has characterised our, our actions when it comes to this from the word go, like from 2012 to the present, is that all of the many contacts that we have in, in police forces in, in, in three states you know, have very strongly recommended that we don't proactively reach out um, to the victims. Truthfully, it would be for our own purposes. Melissa and I both say this, so we'd love nothing more than, the, than to, I guess, throw our arms around them and, and, and apologise and, and, and just express our immense acute regret and, and, you know, and to just say that, you know, they're in our thoughts and prayers continually. But that really would be for our own purposes, and we understand that the reason we're given the advice we, we've been given is that, you know, we, we could inadvertently cause more pain uh, for them than what's already been caused by Jordan. So it's a fraud issue, Narelle. Yes. No, I can, I can hear that and I do understand that. Um, can you tell us how you choose uh, Youth Road Safety came about? Yeah, I was approached by um, a dear friend who's a senior constable here on the Gold Coast. Her name is Tracy Clouston and she runs a Save Day program and uh, she has a um, what they call a mockumentary and um, they have the police, the firemen, and they actually act out a car crash and then they have different uh, speakers and she invited me to speak that day at this um, presentation and ironically enough it was very, very close to Jordan's accident was in the same suburb so it was actually sort of quite nerve-wracking to do that because I was concerned that maybe there might have been you know someone you know, six degrees of separation anyway I'd never public spoken or anything like that but um, I agreed to uh, present on that day and very surprisingly there were about 600 students from a couple of different schools that attended and each one of those students stopped and listened and my presentation back then was for 24 minutes and that entire 24 minutes they stopped and they listened you could you could honestly have heard a pin drop and at the end of it many of them came up to me afterwards which was a bit of a surprise to thank me for the presentation and a couple of them had tears in their eyes and even some of the um, ambulance and fire brigade that were there watching the presentation also came up to to thank me and it was very much a surprise for me because I wasn't even sure whether or not I would be able to engage with the students. Um, you know, I was so tremendously nervous because I hadn't public spoken before. So Senior Constable Tracy Clouston invited me to one the next year again and it was actually at the school that Jordan had attended many years earlier. And again, we, I had that same response and my presentation was a little bit longer this time. I thought I would try and see if I could get a bit more information in there. And after that presentation, I did start to think 
you know, maybe I should go out and try and proactively seek to do this because I had a story that was so relatable that 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old teens were completely and utterly engaged up to the point that afterwards they would seek to have a conversation with me. So as a mother of teens, I know that that's quite unusual to be able to engage such a large number of teenagers. So bit by bit I engaged um, some of my friends that had kids in high schools and uh, I think in that 2018 I did about six presentations and from there we just grew and grew to the point that I'm now choosing to do this full time. Um, it was very much organic the way that it, it happened, Narelle. We, we couldn't have sort of sat around and, and planned the, the way that the organisation has rolled out. We've had a lot of support from police in particular and, and, and educators, um, community, you know, road safety officers in, in municipal councils and very much so from, from parents themselves. So it, it, it's certainly not something, I know this goes without saying, but it's certainly not something we ever sat down and go, right, you know, this is a new career. You know, far from it. It's actually been a genuine movement, I guess you'd call it, or, or a sense of mission that, um, and we often say this, that has driven us, not the other way around. And, um, you know, we're, we certainly would much rather have never had to even confront these issues but now that we are, and the messages that have been shaped very much by the by the young drivers themselves through their lived experiences as well as ours, I guess have developed a momentum of their own. And we've been fortunate to have a lot of support and a lot of love and a lot of skills and assistance directed our way to put together these presentations um, to the to the point where you know the 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 demand for them is stretching our ability to to meet and um that's a good thing because you know we we definitely want to get this message out to every community in australia well you're getting it out um because it's just such a a powerful and sad really but a very very powerful message and look in closing is there a message that you would like to share with those listening to you both right now um, Melissa's looking at me, Narelle, so I'll, but I'll, um, I, I guess, you know, Melissa will also contribute to this. Um, you, you're right when you say that there's, you know, a tragic and a, and a sad nature, of course, to what we've got to say. But the messages are actually really uplifting and, we think and we're learning as as we go and as this continues to expand that the young drivers themselves respond so well to these to these ideas of love and empowerment and family um so we leave our presentations having shown the the young people these relatable stories showing them a mum that's a lot like their mum you know, and a and a, a teen that's a lot like them. But they're left by being emotionally open to the messages. And then they're challenged to leave each presentation to make a difference. 
And if there's one thing teens like and respond to, it's the the idea that they can make a difference, even if it's in their own family, their own cohort, their own school community, and they can they can they can become advocates of of choice and accountability, and they can reject this nonsensical culture that we have that bad driving is bad luck. The more you talk about that, the more obvious it is that we that it's a reasonable aspiration to have to change driving culture. Will we get the road toll down to zero? Who knows? Wouldn't that be fantastic? But what we can do is we can actually say to young people and young people can say to themselves, we don't have to give over to luck. 18 to 25 isn't just a dangerous time to be alive. We can protect our families. We can protect each other. We can make good choices with our driving, just like we can make good choices with our education, with our sport, with our entertainment, with our lives. Driving is not something separate that doesn't fit inside the empowerment of youth. We, we, we think that this generation is way better than to give themselves over to luck. We know it. And, and that's the kind of feedback we get. I think, um, Narelle, I'd love to finish on um, quoting some of the presentation that I do towards the very end. And I take these students on this emotional journey of what life's going to look like for them if they behave recklessly and either kill themselves or kill someone else and wind up in prison or whatever might be the this, this situation. And I show them this awful photo of me and it's uh, about five weeks after Jordan died and I'm, you know, visibly, visibly upset. So I'd just like to um, quote from my presentation while I'm showing them this photo. Here goes. So I want you to look at this photo, this horrible photo behind me. This is what your mother, your father your brothers and your sisters will look like for days, weeks, months and years to come if something happens to you. That, my friends, that is why your parents nag. I miss Jordan every single day. And whilst the crying is no longer daily, the heartache is just so overwhelming. What I wouldn't do to hug my son just one more time and I will grieve that kid to the day that I join him. It's so true when they say that grief is the price you pay for love. And I want to ask you to do a favour for me. When you get home today, I want you to give your mum or your dad or your loved one that hug that Jordan can no longer give to me. And so while you sit here absorbing what this photo behind me means to you, I'm going to set you a very specific challenge. Every time before you put your key in your car's ignition, I want you to imagine your windscreen becoming a photo of your family looking and feeling like this. Every single time your bum hits that driver's seat and you go to start that car, you think about your family looking and feeling like this. You think about what it means to have your hands on a steering wheel knowing that you are in control of a dangerous weapon. And you drive knowing full well you are in control of the choices that you make. And that goes for you as a passenger. 
And that's an interesting point, Narelle, because very often after the presentations, and it also, sorry, it feels so self-centered to talk about myself here because during this period of time, I'm always thinking about those victims' families. But those students come up to me afterwards, and it is not uncommon and not during the COVID period, but for many, many students to come up and give me a hug in tears and thank me for that presentation. And it's always so surprising because it is uh, nearly always the uh, biggest and gnarliest of boys that is the first one that comes up to give me that hug quite often with their with tears in their eyes. And the conversations that we get to have afterwards are so meaningful and the um, messages that the kids send via Instagram and Facebook and the uh, testimonies from parents of what happens when those students go home if mum or dad that hug that Jordan can no longer give us or that Jordan's victims can no longer give their families and then open up and have that opportunity to talk about that dialogue of I don't ever want that, I don't ever want to see you go through what um, Jordan's family and Jordan's victims' families have gone through and I never want to see my siblings go through it. So often the, the kids say I've never even once thought about life, what life would be like for my siblings there is so much power when they think about how much they do actually love mum and dad mm. and how much they love their siblings. Mm. Mm. So it's a very stark reminder mm. for them. And they often, a lot of the messages that they do receive are actually messages that are shaped towards hooning and street races. So they'll look at them and they'll think, they'll look at them and they'll think, well, that's not me. I'm not a street racer. I'm not interested in driving fast. There's a big difference between someone who's deliberately flouting the law and driving fast and someone who just is careless mm. or reckless. Mm. So if people want to come, like it is, I don't know how many times I've said, it's just so powerful. And, Melissa, how do people uh, contact you uh, and Peter if they want you to speak at their school or their club or their organisation? How does that happen? There's one of two ways they can go about doing it. Uh, number one, they can contact their school and speak with their senior school advisor or they can jump on our website, which is www.youchooseyrs.org.au and we have a booking presentation field. You can just click on that, send us an email and we'll get back in contact with you or your school. Well, look, uh, thank you. For uh, everything, um, I'm so sorry um, for your pain and the pain that Jordan has caused. But I just want to leave with one message, and that's exactly what Melissa said to those our listeners out there: that don't forget if there's someone there with you, give them a hug because I know that uh, Peter and Melissa will do anything to be able to give Jordan a hug. Anyway, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Narelle. Thank you. You're more than welcome. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, 
Thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe ethical and responsible manufacturing I love that Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.